to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2. And just to clarify the, the earlier announcement too about the uh, Ash Wednesday service, so we'll talk about that a little more next week. But uh, next week, th- so this week we will have our Wednesday uh, midweek gathering, so there will be classes this coming Wednesday. The following week is our Ash Wednesday service in Potluck. We will not have classes that night, but everybody is invited here for the service and then for the meal after. There's a great tradition of feasting before fasting, um, and so we're going to be having that next Wednesday. We're in Genesis 2, continuing in our series in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the true story of everything, just beginning from the very beginning. It's a good place to start. And... um, Within that, we've been looking at what it means to be a human being. What is it that God has designed us to be? And we're in a little mini three-part series on that. Last week, we looked at to be human means representation. It means that we're made in the image of God. We represent God to the world. We are His priests, His kings, uh, royalty that He's put on this earth, and we represent Him Uh, in all of his dominion and in the filling that he calls us to do. And so we represent God. Representation is what it means to be human. Today we're going to be looking at rhythms, the rhythms of humanity, what it means that we do things as human beings. And then third, next week we'll look at relationships, looking at um, community and the institution of marriage happily on February 14th. a little good providence there. So that's Valentine's Day if you, weren't, if you still haven't gotten anything for your significant other. So we're in Genesis 2. We're looking today at the rhythms of humanity. Let's read starting in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a sophomore in college, I worked at a uh, corrugated box factory. So we made cardboard boxes, and uh, we were behind schedule, and it was just a place of intense work for a whole summer. I was an intern there, and it was just laborious. It was uh, the most I've ever worked in a physical way in all my life. So uh, the very fewest hours that I worked during the week were 72-hour weeks, and uh, it was very normal to to uh, work 84 hours a week. So uh, if you do the math, that's 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And um, I hardly remember anything about that summer. It was just the whole thing is in cloud to me as I, th- as I look back and think, like, what was it that I was thinking or doing? I have no idea. I was just, I had become a machine, uh, like one of the machines that we were working with making these, these boxes. And um, I remember that in those days, I, I settled into a kind of rhythm a rhythm of crashing at night, I'd get home, maybe watch 30 minutes of a show, fall asleep, then wake up. Uh, I would sleep for a long time because I was exhausted. Wake up in enough time to get breakfast, fill, fill my lunch pail uh, full of like twice of what I would normally eat for lunch because it was so uh, hard, such hard work. And then I would go into work and then I would just be in that humming factory environment for all day. And that was just the rhythm over and over and over again. And the truth is, especially for a college student, I made a lot of money. And that was nice. Um, I was able later to buy a guitar that no one should ever spend that much on a guitar as I did. But I was in college, so there you go. And also later, I I (laughs) held on to some of it and bought an engagement ring. So good things came from it. The other people that were working there, we were all working time and a half, you know, getting extra pay as we as we worked the extra hours. And so the ones who were full time employees there, not just for the summer, were just making so much money. They were buying new trucks whenever they could, whenever they would get a shift off and everybody was making good money. But the environment was terrible. It was horrible. There was an ugliness about the whole thing. Interpersonal drama, there was fighting going on, there were supervisors that were constantly angry with one another, there was uh, a feeling of being behind, the reason why we're working so many hours is because we had so many boxes to make and there was just not enough time to make them and so a feeling of scarcity was over the place like we'll never catch up and it just was a terrible place to be. They went on strike actually after I left uh, for the summer, they went and shut the whole factory down because it had become such a place of unrest. There was no space for rest, no space for enjoyment, no space for thinking about what it is that we were doing. Um, In in short, there was no place for humanity. It had just become a machine. And it's true that that we operated with a, a sort of rhythm These are your hours, this is your time off, this is your sleep, this is your food. There is a rhythm to that life, but it was not a rhythm that sustained humanity. All of us have rhythms in our lives, no matter how chaotic our lives happen to be. We have rhythms, we have things that we regularly do. 
Some of us work too much like I did that summer. We put in lots of hours. We work all the time. We wake up and work. We come home and eat a quick dinner and we continue to work. Some of us uh, are always looking for more work. Some of us uh, don't work very much at all. Many of us have a rhythm of working and then crashing, maybe into some takeout and Netflix at night. Maybe our rhythm is that we work hard and then we live for the weekend. There's a rhythm of just get in the 40 hours so that then I can have my real life outside of that. And maybe you feel like your life is full of chaos and there are things that you're not sure what your rhythms are, but I guarantee you that if you look closely at your life, you'll see things that you constantly return to. Things that give you comfort or security, things that help you uh, realize what kind of life you are living if you were to actually take a moment to look at it. The question this morning is, are the rhythms that we do, that we engage in, do they contribute to our humanity, the way that God created us to be? Because what God does is He builds His world in, in a, a sort of rhythm, a seven-day rhythm. And this explicitly in the Scriptures, we are told, is for us to follow. It actually is the way that we understand how it is that we're human beings is that in, in this sense is do we follow this rhythm. We have seven days. Now have you ever stopped to think, why do we have seven days? Why is the week seven days? It's not divisible by ten, so that makes math awkward for a year. When you think about why is time divided by sevens? And the truth is, there is no record of any culture previous to Israel who used a seven-day calendar that we know of. This is a way that the Judeo-Christian world view has shaped all of life because it is actually God's perspective on time and life, and He says there are seven days. Seems somewhat arbitrary when you just start to think about it, but it's actually the way that God designed the world. And in these seven days, we have these two basic structures of rhythm that we're going to be looking at today. The rhythms of focusing and the rhythms of finishing. Focusing and finishing. God's intent for us is that we submit to the rhythms of focusing and finishing. Focusing and finishing being the way that He created us to be. I'm getting those terms from a guy named Justin Whitmer Earl. Uh, who wrote a great book, which I recommend, called The Common Rule. It's a book about a rule of life. If you're not familiar with that concept, it's the idea that your life can function having a rule or a trellis, something on which you return to over and over again. This is the structure of my life. There's a rule that guides my life, and we actually had a conference on that last year, about a year and a half ago, and I would love to do that again. But in that book, he says the two great pleasures of life are focusing and finishing. I love that. I read Genesis 2 and I see this is where he gets that idea. This idea of focusing and finishing is very godlike. And there are a couple of rhythms within those two categories that I want us to look at together now. So first, we'll look at the rhythms of focusing The rhythms of focusing. The two rhythms of focusing are work and worship. These are the things that we give our lives to doing. Work and worship. 
These are rhythms that God encourages us to do. First is work. In the context of Genesis 2, we see that God has been at work. He worked for six days. And later, when we get the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, we are given the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, for in six days you shall do all your work. And the reason why this will be commanded is, for the Lord made the earth in six days. That's the reason why we work, is because God worked explicitly in the scriptures and so what is the work that we do look at verse 15 with me the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it this was his mission God gives mankind work working and keeping or working out and preserving we might say this garden now you may think for a second just think about this this is the garden of eden this is paradise this is the beginning of time why does god give him work to do isn't this already perfection isn't the world already set up the way that it's supposed to be what could mankind do that god hasn't already done well we need to see there's a few important things from that whole concept that God calls man to work um, even in a good and perfect creation, there's a few deductions that we can make about the nature of our work. And the first one would be this. Number one, work is not a result of the fall. What do I mean? Chapter 3, the very next chapter, is the rebellion against God. And one of the results of the rebellion against God is that God curses the ground because of Adam and Eve's sin and says, this ground is not going to yield easily to you anymore. You're going to have to sweat and work hard, and it's going to be frustrating. Now, we tend to go to that passage when we think about work being hard. We think uh, work is a result of evil, but no. Work is here before the rebellion before the fall. So as a result of that, we need to think about the difficult things that we're called to do are not always sinful or as a result of sin. It is a good thing to do difficult things. It is a godlike thing to do difficult and hard things. And if you think about it for just a moment, what would our lives, what would the substance of our lives be without some sense of tension or friction? without some sense of needing to do things. This is why many of us wonder what heaven will be like because we can't think about inactivity for forever. And that leads us to the second thing that we need to say about work. The second deduction that we can make from God placing man in the garden and giving him this job. Number two, work must continue in the new creation. If, as the story of Scripture says, we are returning back to the garden. That if we are getting back to this place of Eden and the whole drama of Scripture is God doing that story, then it must be the case that there are things for us to do in the new heavens and the new earth. As we return to this place of the garden city, we have work to do. Heaven is not boring. It will not be boring 
I've mentioned to you this before, but I'm working on my skills because you're not going to want to hear me preach in heaven. Uh, there'll be plenty of other people that you want to hear from. So I'm working on smoking meats as an alternative, and I thought that might be a great contribution to you to barbecue a lot and to get the perfect sauces and smoking techniques. That's just, that's, I mean, if I'm given a choice, right? I don't know if I'll have a choice or not, but if I'm given a choice, that's what I'm going to do. Our work must continue into the new creation. Not all forms of work. Some forms of work are a result of the fall, but not all work. Because here, there is no fall, and yet there is preservation and keeping going on. The third deduction that we need to make from this statement is this. God intends for us to develop His already good creation. He intends for us to keep going with what He was already doing. And so, while God made the world good, nothing bad in it, there is a sense in which it is unfinished. It's not stagnant. It needs development, care, recreation. The earth, in other words, is full of potential that God encourages us to use and to take for our good and His glory. To take hold of these elements that He's made good and to cultivate them even more. I've often reflected on the Lord's table um, that we're going to take here in just a few minutes. Why it is that God chose, when Jesus gave the Last Supper, bread and wine to represent His body and His blood, to be His body and blood for us. And I've often thought about this. Have you ever thought, why did God choose things that are not naturally occurring? Bread and wine are cultivated things. Grapes and grain that then we put into a process to then come to this place of having bread and wine. And in a sense, we master something else out of God's creation that's not naturally occurring. It's a beautiful picture when you think about it. Our involvement in God's world. And so we think of our work not as just difficult things as a result of the fall, not um, as something that we're doing temporarily that we'll just forget about whenever we go to heaven, and not as though um, God intended us to just keep things the way they are. But rather, there's the freedom of cultivation. Work is the first rhythm of focusing. The second rhythm is worship. Worship. This is another thing that we are called to do. And we're called to do it daily and weekly. In this passage, we see both. First, daily. Look at verse 9 with me. And we see this idea of God giving the tree of Life and the tree of the guard of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse nine: Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look at verse sixteen: And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely." die. So in the midst of the garden, in the midst of this work that they've been called to do, there are these two holy off-limit trees. A lot of discussion has been 
um, written about these two trees? Were they really trees? Were they represent choices? Uh, are they more metaphorical? Like, what's going on with these? I'm not going to dive into a lot of those questions this morning. But it has something to do, these trees have something to do with our autonomy, our, our, our willingness to do something without God, to not live as Jesus did by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. The word of the Lord says, you may have all these trees, but these, uh, these you shall not have. But it's really important to note that in terms of our worshiping life, and we, we need to be people that know God and are on a daily basis, that he does not begin first with prohibition. This is what you shall not do. He begins with permission. If you look at verse 16 again, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of any tree of the garden, of every tree of the garden. This was, of course, a test in a sense But the defining feature of the Garden of Eden was not the test, it was the abundance that God gave. It was His permission. Here is everything that you could possibly need. This is important for us to see because it's certainly wrong for us to think of God as being rule-oriented first and foremost. We don't really get that picture of God or our humanity that we're just a bunch of rule followers. Now, there are rules, but this is not the way that God sets it up. It's not first and foremost about making sure that we check all the boxes. And we see that grace even right here. I've had a couple of images in my mind this week as I've thought about this. The first image was of training a dog, and which I did last year. When you train a dog, you, you have to hover over them, Right? Are they, are they even thinking about peeing on the floor right now? You know, like you got to hover over them and make sure that they follow the rules. You have to hover. And your relationship with the dog is defined by don't. Right? Like, I don't care what you're doing right now, just don't do this. That's what it's defined as. But the second image, if you can picture this, think instead of a wide open, beautiful space and a loving parent who says to a child, go, have fun. And then as they're leaving, it shouts out, don't go too far. That's much more the picture of the life that we have here in the garden where God says, I've given you everything. Go, enjoy, don't go too far. And Adam and Eve did go too far, of course, as we know the story, but think about their daily life, their daily work as they worked in the garden, always with reference to those trees being over there in the middle. Every day passing by those trees, every day a reminder that God was good and yet He was different from them. He was holy. He was set apart. There, was, there were boundaries. Every day a reminder that they had limited life and limited knowledge. And that was a kind of worship, of daily worship, to live in the world with that permission, but also with the boundaries. And I wonder, what, how could we set up our lives so that the greatness of God and His holiness and separateness is somehow in the middle of our lives? 
something that we refer to as we go about our business and do all the things that God's called us to do, that He's permitted us to do. But to have little reminders set up throughout the week. But He is God, and I'm not. And He has a loving care for me to not go too far. Worship is daily, meaning that that's how they lived. They lived with the knowledge of God and yet the freedom to do what they pleased. But it was also weekly because God blesses the seventh day and makes it a Sabbath. Verse 3 tells us, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. This is the first thing in the Bible to be hallowed, to be set apart, to be set up as something holy. It's a day, the Sabbath. And later, this is just a hint of it here, later we have the Ten Commandments to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Later we have uh, instructions on how we read the Scriptures and worship and how we sing together and all of the things that God's people do on the Sabbath. And yet here is just a hint. Hey, worship is it's not just a daily reminder not just personal it's also this day that we've set apart to be together focusing the rhythm of focus work and worship these are the things that we have been called to do what is the focus of your life let me just think about that for a second what is the focus of your life what are you trying to do Another way to put it is this. What are you doing and why are you doing it? The Scriptures answer that question. If you're wondering on just a fundamental level, God has given us us meaningful things to do with our lives. We have work to do. And when I say work, I'm not just talking about our paychecks and the things that we do for a career. He's given us things to do. And He's given us a reason why. An orientation towards Him. Towards worship. When we focus on those things, our life is not wasted. It's given to the thing that it's meant to be uh, as a human being. When we talk about work, we're not just talking about a paycheck. When we talk about worship, we're not just talking about a Sunday service. But it's not less than those things either. Paychecks are important. We have other work to do. We have work, the work of raising our children, of caring for them. We have the work of hospitality. We have the work of being the church and bearing one another's burdens. We have the work of being a good neighbor. We have the work of being a witness to God to this world. There's things that God's called us to do beyond our career. And yet, a career helps us do those other things, doesn't it? So it's not less than that. In the same way, worship is something that God calls us to do. Every day to acknowledge Him, to give Him glory with our lives is our calling. But it's not less than gathering together one day in seven as the Scripture gives us this pattern. It actually enables us, like the paycheck enables the care for the children, which might be another type of work. So the worship of God on Sundays helps us have Family worship and individual worship, it equips us for that. The rhythms first is focusing, work and worship. Secondly, the rhythms of finishing. God did not just focus, He finished. And the two rhythms that I want to talk about in this section are these, rest and recreation. 
God, first of all, rests. On the seventh day, he rests. It's mentioned three times in the first three verses. He's done. All the host of them are finished. God rests from the work that he's done. God finished his work. Now, what is the nature of God resting? Was God tired? Did God need a break? One author says it this way, the rest of God is not the rest of inactivity, or we might add the rest of exhaustion. The rest of God is the rest of achievement. It is not tiredness, it is stepping back to survey what He has done and resting from it. Now this is a contrast to the other stories that we have of this time, the Mesopotamian stories of creation. We see uh, in particular in those, these gods, they get tired of working and they make mankind to be their slaves because they don't want to do the work anymore and so they make men, men and women to do the work. Here is a different picture. God rests on the seventh day in achievement to set a pattern for our rest, which is what it is explicitly later in the Ten Commandments. We rest because God rests. On this day of rest, God gives His unique blessing to it. Verse 3 says, so God blessed the seventh day. Now if you are remembering that word blessed, it's only been used a couple of other times in this first chapter and a half. This first chapter. Um, Chapter 1 of Genesis uses the word blessed twice. And it is in both times about fertility, fruitfulness. Remember that He blessed the animals, so that they would multiply. And then He blesses Adam and Eve so that they would be fruitful and multiply. And here, He blesses the Sabbath. What does that mean? He fills it with the potential for for something from nothing. He blesses this day. And so things come out of the Sabbath that could not have existed otherwise. This rest that God has is a, it's, if you will forgive it, a fertile resting. It is a way to produce more, not less, which is the way that we think about rest because we think often like this. I don't have time to rest. That goes against all of our humanity. What our humanity in the picture of Genesis 2 says is you don't have time not to rest. There's too much to be done. There's so much to be made. There's the, the, fulfill, the filling of the earth that needs to happen. And that pattern is made in rest. This pattern is for us, as Jesus says. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Mark's Gospel tells us the Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. This isn't about a bunch of rules we need to follow. This is about our good. It's a gift. And we cannot be more efficient than God like we think we can. It's the same principle as tithing. You know, I think it's like the equivalent of tithing. I don't know how many times I've heard this, you know, from people who say, you know, I I used I used to just keep all my money and now I tithe, Uh, or maybe I used to be more haphazard in my giving and now I've been started being more intentional. I've lost track of how many times people say, and whenever I started doing that, God just blessed me in a way that I can't understand. I'm not saying you should have that mercenary attitude. You should say, well, I want more, so I'm going to 
give in. And it's, that's not the way that it works either. But, but this is just the story. It's my story as well. It's like something happens when we submit to God, even though the math doesn't add up. Taking 10% away seems like it would be less, but it gives more. And the same is true of the Sabbath. It's like the tithe of time. In fact, though, it's more costly. One day in seven, that percentage is higher than one in ten. I did the math for you. 14.3%, give or take. 14.3%, one day in seven. The question is do you trust God to be more efficient? Do you trust yourself to be more efficient than God? Or do you submit to his pattern that he's given for humanity? One in seven should be different. How is it different? Again, we need to be careful not to be legalistic about this. The Sabbath is for man. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And yet, the Sabbath pattern is in creation and continues all through the Scriptures. I suggest to you it should be different in at least three ways. It should be different physically, different mentally, and different technologically. Because these are often the places where we work. Our physical work, we can think about backbreaking labor. Doing work is physical sometimes. What would it be like to take a day that's different than that physically? But so much of the time, our work is now, especially, is mental, isn't it? Our work happens in the turning of our brains. We have these jobs that are not exactly tied to physical things, some of us. So how would a Sabbath be different mentally, you could ask yourself. And now, of course, all of our work seemingly is technological. It's in email. It's in spreadsheets. How would this day be different technologically? These are questions not to answer from divine writ from your pastor. These are things to wrestle with for your own life and to sit with. What is the pattern that God gives us? Focusing but finishing that rest. Let me close with the last rhythm of finishing. It's recreation. This passage is full of the delight of God's creation. And we are called as human beings to have enough space to finish from our labor to find enjoyment in what God has given us. To find delight. In fact, that's what the word Eden means. The common root of Hebrew, it means delight. The Garden of Eden is a garden of good things, of enjoyable things. And there are three aspects of the recreation that God invites us to that we see in this passage very clearly. Beauty, abundance, and discovery. They're all here. There's a beauty here. This whole passage is beautiful. I encourage you to reread it this afternoon. Look at what God did in creating this beautiful space. He calls explicitly the trees beautiful. In verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Understated. But we know this place is a place of beauty. It's a place of abundance. Look at verse 11 with me. The name of the first, that's the first river, is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. 
This is an abundant place. Gold, onyx stones, delium. This place is not just beautiful, this world that God's created, it's also rich. Why would he draw those things out in this passage? Except to say that that's a good thing. That there are things that we can use here that are helpful and good and abundant. And third, it's a place of discovery. Continuing on in verse 12, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We have four verses here of a digression away from the the Garden of Eden to the surrounding areas. Why are we given a geography lesson right now? It's zooming out a little bit from the Garden of Eden, seeing where it's placed. Oh, the name of the third river is the Tigris. You know the Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. Wait a second, this is the beginning of time. There is no Assyria. There isn't when this, what, with reference to what this is about. But it is with reference to where it's written. Moses is writing this. There is a place called Assyria. He's telling people that from this garden, we can see the sense of God's story going out to even places that we know, to Assyria. God puts this garden in the east. East of what? East has to have a reference point, right? There has to be something here. What he's talking about is east of where the people of God are. As they leave, Moses brings the people out of, the, um, out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, into the Sinai Desert. He goes east, back towards Mesopotamia where this began. There's a whole world that God is doing. And of course, we know the story of the Scriptures. It keeps expanding, keeps going in ever greater circles. Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. God's story continues. There is a sense of discovery that this story is not just about what the events that happen here, but about the rest of the world. Now, as we close today, I want to just challenge us to think about some of these things. Rest and recreation and these things that have been shown to us in this passage. If you believe that the only purpose of the Bible, the only purpose, is to provide a path of personal individual salvation, we have to ask ourselves, then why are these things in here? The Bible is certainly, certainly not less than that. Without the knowledge of God, without the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ, without seeing Him as the center of the Scriptures, without seeing Him as the the goal of all creation and the author of creation, without bowing our knees to Him, there is no right understanding of God's good creation. It comes first. But reflect on this. God didn't give us a tract that just has a few verses about how we need to be saved. He gave us descriptions of rivers and of places and of time and of a correct understanding of our humanity. And we need to embrace that enjoyment of God's world if we're to be real human beings. One of our favorite activities to do as a family is to just find a river wherever we go. And play in it. 
You know, we, when we go up to Pine Top Lakeside, we find a river to play in. We, whenever we go, we just find somewhere to play in. And, you know, we have three boys, in the, well, we have four boys in this family because I would include myself in that category. And there's no, there's no running water. I'll just give you a little insight into a boy's way of thinking. Um, there is no running water where we don't think, is there a way that I could stop that or redirect it? You know what I mean? Building dams is just, or redirecting water, it's just something that we do. And um, I'm all in. I'm, you know, time gets lost when we're doing that. Grabbing stones, making little pools of water that go off to the side, or sticks that redirect the water away, um, or trying to stop the water altogether. It is very unproductive. It is very uh, unpragmatic use of time. What is the benefit of redirecting water? I don't know. But there's something of God in it. As he describes these rivers here that flow in all the places they go, there's something amazingly beautiful and it calls out to us. We have a deep longing and I think it has something to do with this. It's a relief sometimes to do things that are not just a means to an end, but are an end in themselves. And God created us to desire those things, to finish from our work and worship, and to rest, but also to do things that are of value in and of themselves, to play. Focusing finishing. That's the rhythm of being a human being. And as we've done each week, I close each time us reflecting on Jesus Christ, the God-made man, because he did this pattern of focusing and finishing. He is the true human being. He is the human par excellence. He is what we are called to be. And Jesus focused and he finished. He did. He focused. He came here to work, to accomplish redemption. John 5.17 says, My Father is working till now. I am working. Jesus worked. He worked like no one else. He worked tirelessly. He did hard things. He worked. He, He focused and He finished. He finished His work of redemption by dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, and then ascending into heaven. And when he ascends to the heaven, the next step is that he sits down, right? He sits down at the right hand of the Father. He finishes. It is finished. And when he sits down at the right hand, like God at the beginning on the seventh day, the rest is not a rest of inactivity, and it's not a rest of exhaustion. It's a rest of achievement. What has he achieved? The redemption of all things. Jesus focused and he finished. And the invitation is here for us to find ourselves in this God-man so that we can have a restored humanity. When you are united with Christ, your humanity, your, the rhythms that are latent within you then can be restored. Why? Because the gospel teaches us this. When we do things, when we work, 
We are working with His might, His energy. As Paul says in Colossians 1, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. Everything that we do now, if we are in Christ, is done because God enables us to do it. Whether that's washing the dishes or working for a paycheck or painting an amazing painting that Gabor has shown us this morning. Whatever that work is, or reading a story to your kids at night, whatever it is that God's called you to do, you work with all His energy and you rest in His achievement because you are no longer working for your own benefit or for your own advancement. You are working because He has brought you into Himself and given you things to do. But when you rest in Him, when you have His achievement, Christ's achievement as your goal, then a Sabbath rests over your life. A Sabbath rests over your heart and it challenges and it releases the tension of your insecurities and it releases the tension of, of your ambitions and whatever it is that may be stirring in you. You think, I've got to do this because... Those things can melt away and the Sabbath can be over your life because your life no longer is about your accomplishments. It's about finding yourself in Jesus Christ who has done everything for you and teaches you how to be a human being like He was. Let's pray.